please turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Acts and the sixth chapter. Acts chapter 6. I also add my words of welcome to those who are here today. We're glad to see all of you, see the Lord's house filled out in this manner, and we trust that everyone will be blessed through the Word of God. All visitors are especially welcome, and it's good to see you all here today from the priestly family circle, as Mr. Stewart has said. So Acts chapter 6, before we read, let's just have a word of prayer, and we'll commit our way to the Lord. Eternal God and blessed Father, we continue in Thy presence in the name of Thy well-beloved Son. We draw near upon redemption ground. We pray for help now as we come to the Word of God. We pray that Thou wilt use Thy Word today to bless our hearts. We pray that especially it will be used to guide the congregation concerning the choice of a new church committee. We pray, Lord, that in all these matters Thou wilt be glorified and Christ will be exalted. Let there be a word and season for every soul. May the Holy Spirit direct our thoughts. May He come and govern all that will be said. Hear prayer, O Lord, and abide with us. We ask this for Christ's sake and for His glory. Amen and amen. Acts 6 and the verse number 1. Let us just read from that down to verse 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And God will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. The New Testament contains three books that are known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, many of you are aware of them, First and Second Timothy, and then, of course, the book of Titus. The books were written to gospel ministers who were pastoring Christian churches, this gave rise, therefore, to this phrase, the pastoral epistles. As pastors, Timothy and Titus required instruction on many issues, one of them being the care of Christ's church. That instruction that Timothy and Titus were given included in the Spirit-inspired letters that Paul wrote to both men this whole matter of the offices of the church of Jesus Christ. So that is one of the issues that Paul addressed. Offices occupied, of course, by men only, but by men who are duly qualified to occupy them. The only two offices mentioned in the New Testament are the offices of elder 
and deacon. First Timothy 3 makes that very, very clear. And by the way, we will be turning to First Timothy 3 a little later here. But that chapter makes it very clear that there are but two offices. In verse 1, Paul refers to the office of a bishop. And then in verses 10 and 13, he refers to the office of a deacon. Nowhere else in the New Testament is there any mention made of any other office ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ in the context of the care of the Christian church. Rather, other scripture also that touches on these matters verifies that these are the only two offices that the Lord has ordained. For example, Philippians 1 verse 1, where Paul greets the Philippian church, and he says this, he greets all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops or elders and deacons. You have in those words in Philippians 1 verse 1, a New Testament church in terms of its composition. It's composed of the saints or the body of believers. It's also a body of people who have within their very ranks elders and deacons. And that is a very important reference. It clarifies for us beyond any doubt that the churches of the first century, and this pattern therefore is established in this way, were bodies of Christians with a plurality of elders and deacons only serving among them. It must be said, however, that these two offices are not the same. And that has to be underlined. The elder's office is one of exercising spiritual rulership in the church of God. That spiritual rulership is twofold. I've already referred to the fact that the word bishop is synonymous really with the office of the elder, and therefore the two terms are used interchangeably, especially in Acts chapter 20, where you find that interchange of the words. But the word bishop signifies oversight. It has to do with watching over the flock to exercise spiritual care of the Lord's people. The word elder then for the same office signifies the gravity or the seriousness with which the man in this office is to go about his work in that he exercises spiritual rule. And that is, of course, a very serious responsibility. That's verified in this same book of or over in 1 Timothy, rather, that I've referred to, 1 Timothy 5, 17, where Paul speaks of the elders that rule. And so there is the difference between the two words, bishop and elder. One has to do with watching over the flock. The other has to do with ruling over the flock of God in a spiritual sense. However, the New Testament never describes the work of the deacon in the terminology that is given to the elder. From various scriptures, we can easily deduce that the deacon's work or role is that of being helpers to the elders of the church of Jesus Christ. This fact is seen here in Acts chapter 6 and the verse number 2. The apostles, you see, were also elders. And we read here of a certain directive that they gave in the words in verse number 2. It says, It is not reason, that means it's not suitable, that we should leave the Word of God 
and serve tables. In other words, they're speaking here of the physical and the material, even the financial aspects of the work of God. And it was not their mind to be distracted from their spiritual oversight and rulership to have to give attention to those matters. And so against that backdrop, the church then proceeded to elect men to carry out the work that's in view in this kind of language. These men, therefore, were appointed not to rule as the elders did, but to give assistance to the spiritual leaders of the work of God. Over in 1 Corinthians 12 and 28, we have similar instruction. In that verse, we have Paul writing this way, and he says, God hath set in the church helps, governments. And those are two particular roles that are specified by Paul in that Scripture, helps, then governments. And in those two terms, these two offices are obviously in view. The word governments signifies giving guidance, therefore points to someone who as a guide serves in the local church. That would be the elder, obviously. Then there's the word helps, which simply signifies giving assistance. And that, of course, is the work of the deacon. So the deacon does not govern or rule as the elder does, but gives assistance to those in the eldership through practical help in various ways. And so I say these things to you in order just to set a basis for what I want to go on to do in preaching the Word of God in this meeting just now. It is the mind of the Kirk session, as you are aware, to have a meeting of the communicant members of this congregation on the 27th of February, the Lord willing, for the purpose of electing a committee, electing men to the office of deacon. We use the word committee as a, as a, a term that has been used in Presbyterianism down through the generations, but what we're really referring to is a body of deacons, a board of deacons who will be chosen by you the congregation to serve in this particular role. And so in preparation for that particular meeting on the 27th of February in the will of God, I and Mr. Sharp will bring a few messages to you over today and the next two weeks on this subject. And so today we want to come to some basic truths regarding this office in order to gain guidance and direction. It's important, therefore, that you as the Lord's people who will vote in that meeting, you who will do that, you pay attention to this, and you get into your minds and your hearts what's involved here, that you might be taught in the ways of God, that you might receive instruction that will give you light and understanding with regard to how you uh, bring about the outcome of that vote that will take place on that evening. There are two main points I want, by the Lord's help, to try to make here today. I'll see how time goes. And first of all, we have the ministry of the deacon. And I want just to pause here and mention to you the word deacon. Uh, in the New Testament, the original Greek word that is translated deacon in three places is used altogether 30 times. Three times, as I said, it's translated deacon. Seven times as servant. And then another uh, 20 times as minister. And so study reveals that the basic idea 
in the word, the Greek word deacon diakonos, is that of service. Now, this comes out very clearly here in Acts chapter 6. Look with me in verse number 1. At the very close of that verse, you have this phrase, the daily ministration, the daily ministration. And the form of the word ministration in the original language is diakonia, which actually is therefore from the word for deacon. And so note that. And then verse number 2, we find this particular uh, word used. It says here toward the end of the verse that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. And the word for serve there is the verb form of the word for deacon. And so what we're finding is that in this very passage, I don't expect you to remember all those little details in terms of the words, but I just felt I should specify them because what we find is that in this passage, as they work toward electing the seven men who are mentioned in the uh, verse number six, it has to do with the office of the deacon. Very, very clearly it does. And that, of course, is not something original with me in terms of a discovery. It has been the understanding of commentators and of our Presbyterian forefathers down through the generations that these six verses here, or seven verses in Acts chapter 6, are dealing with that office. It's the very first time in the New Testament that you have an election taking place of men whom we call, and the Bible calls, deacons. Now, the practicality of the deacon's work, the ministry of the deacon, in other words, comes out again in verse number 3. It says there, men whom we may appoint over this business. And notice that, men whom we may appoint over this business. Now, in the context here, and in the remote context of these verses, and I'm going to take you to that, the reference is to the distribution of funds. The money that came in was distributed and given to those who were in need. Go back, please, to chapter 4 and verse number 34. Acts 4, verse 34, it says this, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And that's an important detail. They laid down the, uh, the, 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 the amounts of money that were brought in through the sale of these properties. They laid the, the funds down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And so the allocation of funds is what's in view there. People very generously sold their properties. Many were destitute. Many were poverty-stricken. There was great need, and therefore this developed. It developed very naturally. Christians in the early church saw their brothers and sisters. They saw that they had desperate needs, and they willingly gave up their properties. They were sold, and the money was then brought to the apostles. And the apostles at that stage distributed the funds that came in. But now we go back to chapter 6. And that is the background to chapter 6. We find in verse number 1 that some widows, the end of verse, num uh, verse number 1, some widows were neglected in the daily ministration. What ministration? 
Well, this ministration of these funds, some were being neglected. And the reason why they were being neglected is because the elders were so much under pressure with their preaching and their spiritual labors that they did not have the time to deal with these matters, and so something had to be done. And so that's the background to all that happens now in Acts chapter 6. These seven men of whom we read were appointed by the congregation there in Jerusalem with regard to that area of practical business in the Lord's work. And so in the light of the first mention of the appointment of deacons, the ministry of the deacon emerges in terms of its nature, in terms of what the deacon is to do in the work of God. As I said earlier, he's to give assistance with regard to the practical care of the cause of God. That's the principle that comes out of these verses that are all tied together and all present a picture and all give us direction as to this matter of this office and what it means and what it's for and what God has appointed it to do. I'll be saying more about that in a moment or two, but just let me underline this to you. The deacon's ministry is not to be thought of as having no spiritual connotation or meaning to it. I've been stressing here the nature of it, the, the, the uh, significance of it, to help in this way, to assist the elders, to do with practical material matters. But that does not mean that that office has no spiritual connotation. Turn now to 1 Timothy, and I would encourage you to put a marker in both places, Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3, for we'll go to and fro here a little in this message. So turn to 1 Timothy 3, verse 9, please, and notice this about the qualifications of the deacon, because we read here, as I said earlier, of the office of the deacon, and in verse number 9, it says something about the man who will be a deacon, who may be chosen by the congregation. It says this, that he's to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And so we discover here in this language that while the deacon's role is a very practical kind, it does not mean that he is not to be a spiritually-minded man, or a man with a burden for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what is meant by that phrase, the mystery of the faith. The faith is the gospel. The word mystery simply signifies that the gospel would remain unknown to mankind, but for the fact that God revealed it. That's the sense of the word mystery. I've often said this. The word mystery doesn't mean a mystery as you and I understand the word mystery. It's something that has been revealed. And what has been revealed is the faith or the gospel by which sinners are saved through God's sovereign grace. And so it's a special revelation that's in view in that expression, the mystery of the faith. God's special revelation for the redemption of sinners, the truth that saves and builds Christ's church. All true Christian service is focused on that truth. In other words, the deacon, along with the elder, is to be a man who at his heart has a burden for the mystery of the faith to be 
uh, sent forth and to be proclaimed and to be declared in society, in our own church family, or in this town, or across this land, or across the nations. Because you see, that means, therefore, that every action that's carried out in a congregation in terms of the practical, material, financial business of that congregation has one ultimate goal. And that ultimate goal is to hold on to the mystery of the gospel, promote it and preach it and proclaim with all our hearts and souls as a group of God's people. So when you think about that, it makes perfect sense that deacon's work is to have to, is ha, has to do with a building or a building program or keeping up property or taking funds and sending them to mission fields and so on, supporting the work of God. That all comes within the remit of the deacon's work. It's a very broad, expansive work. May I say to you today as a congregation, we have had a, a deacon's board for the last seven years. I explain to you every seven years, or even less than that, if it's our will, we find, uh, we come to the point where we uh, dissolve the present committee and then a new committee is elected, or a committee, a board of deacons is elected. But let me tell you that over these seven years, men of God have spent endless hours taking care of the work of God sacrificing time, sacrificing other areas of their lives and giving it to the cause of Jesus Christ. And it's all for the goal of seeing the gospel promoted and sent forth. That's the ultimate goal that always must be kept in mind. One of the best ways of seeing this is that it's wonderfully underlined in Christ Himself. In Luke 22, verse 27, the Lord says this. Hear these words, my friend. Luke 22, 27. I am among you as he that serveth. And the verb serveth there can be read this way. I am among you as he that acts as a deacon. That's the literal sense of those words. Christ acted as a deacon. In Romans 15 and verse number 8, we've got something similar. It says this, Jesus Christ was a minister. And the Greek word is this word diakonos. Jesus Christ was a deacon of the circumcision. And that means with regard to the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Christ labored. Christ toiled. Christ used all of His powers as a deacon of the gospel so that the gospel would reach the Jews. But also, verse 9 of Romans 15 goes on to underline that it also was for the Gentiles. And so, brethren and sisters, notice this. The Lord's ministry was a ministry in which as a deacon under God, he served his day and time, and he did it with all his heart and soul and mind. And so it brings out the whole matter that the Lord's own service was of a redemptive nature. I'm leaving out verses here for the sake of time, but there's one I can't leave out. 
And that's Matthew 20, verse number 28. And there it says in the words of Christ Himself, For the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister, to act as a deacon, and to give His life a ransom for many. That is a powerful statement. Because we're brought there to the very epitome of the diaconal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave Himself. He gave His precious blood. There's how He served. He served to the very end of His life through toil, through ridicule, through oppression, through suffering of every kind until He came to the cross. And there as the deacon without parallel... He gave Himself a ransom for many. And that brings out to you and me today that while we talk about the ministry of the deacon as a a ministry that has to do in terms of the actual working of that body, has to do with practical, material, financial matters, yet in the final analysis is a work that contributes to the whole matter of the of maintaining and holding to the mystery of the gospel, uh, to the promotion of the gospel, to the spread of the gospel, to the going forth of the gospel, to the ends of the earth. And so when you've got elders who have got a burden for the local scene, who arrange missions, who arrange outreaches, who have a burden for the children's work and the youth work, that they will all prosper, they will all grow, they will all develop, they will all be used of God. And then you have a deacon board behind them willing to support all that and see that it's all financed. Everything is geared toward the promotion of the gospel. That's a matter that's of vital importance for you to understand. That is why deacons must be saved. That's a basic qualification. Never mind, elders should be saved. It's actually, it's actually, my friend, sad that in many denominations, whether it's the elder or the deacon, the choice is made not based on whether a man has that basic spiritual qualification that he is, the chi- he is a child of God, but is based on some other fleshly, carnal issue. And that is entirely wrong. We've no idea who these men were except we've got their names. We know a little about Stephen taking the first deacons. But they were all men of God because they all had a heart for the gospel and they all wanted to serve the Lord in promoting the gospel. And you know, when that, since that is true rather, how that should speak to you. What is the Christian life all about? It's about promoting the gospel. It's about serving the Redeemer, the great deacon, the one who outshines all of us, the one who served and labored and denied himself endlessly that his work would be done. All of this points you as a Christian in this congregation to put your heart and soul into it. Don't think for one moment, well, we'll elect a board of deacons at the end of the month and they'll do everything. No, there's something that you can do. I I want to be very practical here. There may come a time when there's a call goes out for people to come to help to do whatever it might be. Are you willing for that? 
Are you saying to yourself, maybe, well, that's beneath me. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Let the deacons do that, or the elders along with the deacons. Of course, it's as uh, what happens. And so you might even have the ministers and the elders and the deacons here, scrubbing floors, doing whatever. But where are you? See, that's the whole point. We work together as a congregation with regard to the practical side of the work, and then it's done. So all the rest, in fact, more time then can be devoted to doing that which is spiritual, which is really what the work of God is all about, exalting Christ, sending forth the truth, and glorifying His wonderful name. So there is the ministry of the deacon. Take heed to it. Endeavor within your heart. You might say to yourself, well, I don't think I'll let my name go forward. That's entirely your choice, brother. But that doesn't mean that you can't labor somehow or other to help and to assist in the work of God. It may mean, and it will mean, that certain names in the final analysis on that sheet that you will use as a template to cast your vote, some of those names will not be elected. That always is the outcome. But even those men who aren't elected, that does not mean that you cannot labor for Christ in the work of God. So, see this. Then look with me at verse number 3 of Acts 6. And here we have, having just looked quickly at the ministry of the deacon, look at the molding of the deacon. Verse 6, or sorry, verse 3 of Acts 6 says this, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so the Lord's people in that first century church in Jerusalem were instructed to look for men. It says, look ye out among you. They were part of the congregation already, therefore. Not only that, but they were already men who had been prepared for the task. Behind the scenes and for a certain period, the Lord had been preparing men. The preparation of men does not take place at the instance of their being chosen to the office. It occurs beforehand in the sense that the Lord has already been working with them and molding them and shaping them for the role, and therefore guided by the Spirit, the members of the congregation in Jerusalem chose men in whom they could discern the molding and the preparation of them for this office. Now that says something. It says an awful lot. It says, of course, that not every man, every brother in the congregation has been molded by the Lord, because they use a specific number here. It's not the number we will use. We'll be told more about that as we get closer to the time. Already this past committee, there were 14 men on the committee. But it's simply signifying that there were a certain amount of men, a certain number of men in that church, and the apostles felt, well, this is the guide we're giving. Look out, seven men. But the point is, there were more than seven men in that church family. Therefore, others were not appointed. And that's a very important thing, because moving into an election in terms of uh, what we're talking about here and will take place in God's will at the end of the month, 
is a time when great spiritual discernment must be used, but not only that, great spiritual attitude. You look out for the men whom God has molded. You ask the Lord for wisdom, for discernment as to who should be in this office. The salient thing that stands out in verse 3, well, there are, some, uh, there are a number of qualities mentioned there, but the one that really stands out on the very surface of the verse is that they must be men who are full of the Holy Ghost. What that means is men who have got spiritual control within their hearts and within their lives. It infers very clearly, therefore, that the Holy Ghost has molded these men because these men are filled with the Spirit and the people are told to look out for that and, and to look at that particular qualification. Spirit-filled men will be men who will have what God would have them to possess in terms of abilities in order to fulfill this, partic this particular role. And so just think about this matter. That's what I mean by the molding of these men. The Holy Ghost is the one who molds men for office. It says it there in Acts 20, 28 with regard to the elder. The Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And here's the infilling of the Spirit brought out again in this particular passage. And that means that the man who will be a deacon is to be a man of prayer. A man of prayer. You know, whenever the president examines the churches, and on Friday night past, two churches were examined with regard to their, their, their state, their, their spiritual level, etc., etc. And one of the questions that's asked about the deacon is, with regard to how faithful they are in the church prayer meeting, or prayer meetings, exactly plural, do they attend the church prayer meetings faithfully. You see, a man who's full of the Holy Ghost will want to pray, and he will be in the prayer meetings of the church of God. That will be his burden to come before the throne of grace. He has the Holy Spirit in him, and of course that means that he's got the spirit of prayer in his heart. That's what is in view here, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. He's got the Holy Spirit in his heart and his soul, and therefore he's led by the Spirit, he's directed by the Spirit, he is guided by the Spirit, and therefore he will be a man who has got a heart for prayer. Just not praying personally and privately, yes, that's vital too, but praying also in the church prayer meetings, his voice heard, lifted up to God, crying to heaven, along with the rest of the saints of God. He will be on as well as he's molded by the Holy Spirit, who will have a genuine interest in spiritual matters. The men chosen in Acts 6 were appointed to deal with a material issue in the church, but simultaneously their spiritual interests were deep. I mean, see that especially in the example of Stephen. It says in verse 5 that they chose Stephen. Then it says this, a man full of faith 
and of the Holy Ghost. So back in verse 3, it refers to the fullness of the Spirit. And that comes up again in verse number 5. But notice there, Stephen is singled out, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse number 8. Stephen full of faith and power. Verse number 10. They were unable to resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which he spake. Let me say to you today that Stephen, who was a deacon, who did not occupy the office of the elder, who was not an apostle, yet was one of the greatest servants of God in that early church period. You know that he didn't live very long. As a young man, he was martyred, as Acts 7 shows you. But what a work he did for God. What a ministry he had. That's all because he was full of the Holy Ghost, he was full of faith, and thereby he was full of wisdom. And so note these matters. A man of prayer, a man with a deep interest in spiritual life, a man under the control of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, the vital thought is there. This vital thought about control is there in reference to being filled with the Spirit. When a man is filled with the Spirit, the Spirit controls not the flesh. Not the flesh. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians, be not drunk with wine. And it's a very, very vivid and in a sense a very extreme kind of language there. Be not drunk with wine wherein is access, but be filled with the Spirit. What does he mean by using that? Why does he draw a parallel between being filled with the Spirit and being filled with drink, for that's what it means, that's what it signifies. And the point is that drunkenness is one of the works of the flesh. And so that's why God forbids drunkenness. The Ephesians obviously had been drunken people, and then God saved them. And obviously some of them were having a problem with it. And Peter or Paul has to write and say, Don't be drunk with wine. Wherein is access. The word access refers to destruction. It refers to that which will undermine life and vitality. Don't be drunk with wine, but rather, that means don't be under the control of the flesh, but be controlled by the Spirit of God. And you will find that in Stephen's life, as you can see when you read Acts chapter 6. We've noted some of these verses about Stephen. If you go down to verse number 15 of Acts chapter 6, it says this, All that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The context here is where Stephen is now arrested. He's going to go on trial, as Acts 7 shows. But he faces it all with the greatest composure and calmness because he is a spirit-filled man. He can handle it. He can deal with it because of the power of the Holy Ghost. Go to Acts 7, verse 55. It says this, and this is now at the very moment of his death. But he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God. Now, now see with me in that verse those words, he being full of the Holy Ghost. 
And literally those words read this way, but he existing full of the Holy Ghost. This was Stephen's normal, to put it that way. His normal pattern of behavior, his normal, his normal supply of the Holy Ghost, he existed full of the Holy Ghost. There wasn't a day that went by that Stephen wasn't under the control of the Spirit of the living God. And therefore, even when he came to die, he could face death and all that was coming upon him because he was a man who had been molded by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, given calmness by the Spirit, right through all of his days, all of his ministry, until the Lord, by this means of martyrdom, took him home to heaven. All of that amounts to this, that Stephen wasn't a man under the control of the flesh, but the control of the Spirit of God. Look ye out among you, men like this, who are controlled by the Holy Ghost, molded for office by the Holy Spirit, because when that is so, then there will be blessed results with regard to this whole molding work of the Spirit. If you look back with me, you'll find in this whole chapter, Acts 6, that the burden of the apostles, I've already touched on this, was that the work of God would go forward. And you see that in their own desires. Not reason, verse 2, not suitable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Verse 4, we'll give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Then go down to verse 7. By the time you get to verse 7, the election has taken place. That's exactly what it is in verse 5. They chose, they chose, they chose. The Word means they elected. They elected these men. But notice what happened in verse 7. And the Word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. What do you see here? You discover that new momentum was given. The work was blessed in a mighty fashion. You see, they were wrestling with something. There was a problem. That's what the first couple of verses show you. There was murmuring among the congregation because certain people were been left out of that situation where the apostles had the responsibility of distributing the funds and they just couldn't get to it. And so they elected the deacons. And immediately the work turned in a new direction. And the work of God moved forward, spiritually I mean, and, of course, that meant it was moving, uh, moving forward in every other way as well. New momentum was gained. The work was blessed in a mighty fashion. And, therefore, this was God's time for spiritual progress. This was God's time. And that is a tremendous verse, verse number 7. Think about what I said earlier. The deacon's role is that of being supportive to the elders of the church of Christ. Deacons working diligently and in harmony and with a Christ-centered focus as they attend to the practical operations of the house of God and the cause of God, enabling the teaching and the ruling elders to focus on their labors for the Master. And all of this, all of this then came to pass. The Word of God increased. 
more and more were saved. Things went forward. And my friend, all that happened here paved the way for a glorious and a wonderful outcome. And so I want you to get a hold of that. Electing a committee. You might say, oh no, not again. We have to go and sit there, cast our votes, and then wait for whoever looks after the meeting to get them all counted and, and so on. My dear friend, don't view it that way. That's, that's carnal. This is part of the Word of God. When you become a member, you are given the privilege, actually, of choosing your own office bearers, of putting them into those roles. It's not to be treated as a drudgery or some kind of a mere formality or a mundane thing. It's for the good of the work of God. And the Lord has blessed the work here and prospered it in many, many ways. And I believe because we've had men who have served the Lord very faithfully. Well, there's a whole new era coming. And you know that. Doesn't, I'm not saying that because I'm retiring, but the point is we're entering into a new era. And therefore, take on yourselves the thought here, here's a ministry that the church needs. Here is, therefore, the burden of my prayer. I'm talking about you. You must say as a member, I need to pray that the Lord will mold and shape and fashion the right men, and that I will discern them and see whom the Lord lays upon my heart. And I trust you will take that to your souls today. Really, this message is introductory to what we will say somewhat more next week. But take it to heart today and endeavor with all your soul. I will be part of the work of God here I will support God's men as they are chosen, and I will labor with them, along with all the others, the minister of the future, the elders, the deacons. I will labor with them for the promotion of Christ's cause and for the glory of His wonderful name. Let us bow in prayer, and we will return to these matters in the will of God next week. Let's unite our hearts together at this stage and let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thou dost know our souls and our longings and our yearnings over Thy work, and we pray this day that Thou wilt hear our cries, Thou wilt raise up those men of Thy choosing, and Thou wilt have them to occupy this office. We pray for direction. We pray for wisdom. We pray for the moving of the Spirit and for His guidance to be given. So, Lord, hear prayer and Abide with us now. Remember the evening gatherings. Give help to thy servant as he preaches then and help around the table this night. May we know the Lord among us, know the power of the Holy Ghost in a wonderful way. Abide with us now and part us with thy blessing. We pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.